Welcome to the Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, and still, less ukulele. So far, but look out. Mm -hmm. In this episode, we look at one of the more controversial topics out there in the home brewing world. Do you even need to chill your beer after brewing? You know, it's kind of old lore, and well, I I had it drilled into my head, and I'm sure Denny, you had it drilled into your head too. Yeah, when when I first started hearing about no chill brewing, it's like you can't do that. Yeah, so you know, I was taught you have to chill this stuff fast. But let's sit back and take a look at what it means to stay hot and still make beer. Well, you're always hot. But before we get into that, a message from our sponsors. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a hub for homebrewers since 1978. Visit homebrewersassociation.org for recipes, brewing tips, and community. Family-owned Atlantic Brew Supply is the biggest homebrew shop in the Southeast. No gimmicks, no multinational corporate overlords, and no BS. Unique ingredients from local suppliers, including malt from neighboring Artisan Malt House Epiphany Craft Malts and award-winning recipe kits, including the Toll, Raleigh Brewing Company's GABF-winning Imperial Oatmeal Stout. Plus, we've got pro-level equipment and the best-in-cask supply equipment from sister companies ABS Commercial and Cask Supply. Malts, extracts, and more, all available by the ounce, an on-site calculator to help you craft your best brew, same-day order processing, and guaranteed two-day shipping for East Coast customers. Get 15% off your first order when you use the coupon code BREWFILES at checkout at Atlantic Brew Supply. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Hey, thank you so much for sticking around. And remember, if you interact with any of the sponsors that you just heard from, make sure you told them that you heard about them here on the Brew Files so they know they're spending their money well. Let's dig into No Chill. As Denny alluded to in the opener, it's somewhat kind of heresy, this idea. You know, at least for both of us, when we were learning how to brew, one of the biggest, most important lessons that we learned was you got to get your temperature down fast. You got to get it, you got to get it so that the, that the yeast can be in there. It can outcompete any sort of uh, other critters that are there. Not, not only that, they uh, always told us that if we didn't chill quickly, we would have uh, DMS and it would leave us with a cloudy word. Yeah. So lots of different reasons to do it. But of course, the problem is in brewing is that brewing is incredibly wasteful from a water standpoint. So it's not uncommon to see 
people spending, you know, if, if they talk about a lot in terms of uh, water to beer ratios. How much water do you have to use in order to make X amount of beer? And so it's not uncommon to see people use seven to 10 gallons of water per gallon of beer that they're making. In other words, for the typical homebrew batch, you know, think about like five gallons. So somewhere around say 20 liters, um, you're talking about 35 to 50 gallons of water for that batch. Or if we're going to be a metric, uh, you know, about 140 liters to 200 liters. That's a lot of water to use to make beer. In the commercial brewing world, there's obviously a lot of interest in what they can do to reduce the amount of water that they're using. And Miller Coors is actually pretty well ahead of most of the brewers out there, including, you know, our ecologically minded craft brewers, like say New Belgium. Miller Coors is using right now about 3.2 gallons per gallon of beer. And they have a corporate goal of reducing it to three gallons by the end of this year. Do we know how they managed to do that? Massive reuse and a reuptake. And yeah, it's it's a lot of different stuff. But of course, obviously, they're not crowing about everything they're doing. Yeah, right. And by the way, when we say this number here, you know, saying, you know, the seven to 10 gallons of water per gallon of beer, a lot of times when you read stuff from the point of view of uh, environmentalists who are talking about water usage that involves the things that you have, you know, like, oh, it takes X number of gallons to make plastic or, you know, to grow your, to, you know, get a loaf of bread to the store. They're often including other sources of water usage, including the transportation and the growing. That seven to 10 gallons is literally just seven to 10 gallons during the brewing process. And that includes the water that goes into your mash and kettle and all that stuff, right? And for cleaning and for chilling right. and for everything. Right. So if we stop what we think about uh, from an ecological point of view, the, we always hear about the three R's. And in the past, we've mentioned about how to reuse certain elements of brewing to be less wasteful. So in this particular case, saving chilling water for use in cleaning. I know, Denny, you do that. You save some of your chilling water to clean up afterwards. Yeah, I, I run my uh, chiller output into a bucket and uh, get seven gallons of hot to warm water there uh, that I use for cleaning up my kettle at the end. Yeah, and other people will use it to, you know, garden, you know, take the water off, let it cool, and you use that to water your plants, start your laundry, fill the pool, whatever. Um, and if you're really on a brewing tear, you can actually do what the big guys do, which is use the chilling water to set up for your next batch. But that's got to be a back-to-back type thing. Yeah, right. When I when I worked at uh, Oakshire doing tours, one of the things I would point out to people was that uh, all the water from the chiller uh, went back into the hot liquor tank and was used again. Absolutely. And that's a, that's a very common one to do, but that's the, that's the reuse. The most important, and this is everybody who's big into like the three R's will tell you that the most important, the primary R and the one that is the, the most impactful is to reduce. So reduce, recycle, reuse, right? And the primary waste components and water usage in brewing is for both cleaning and for chilling. So what happens if we eliminate one of them altogether? And of course, we're not talking about cleaning because if you eliminate your cleaning, I don't want to have your beer. <laughs> yeah, you know, and and while there are other reasons for uh, doing no chill, um, you know, just not having the equipment to chill or something like that, uh, water usage is pre- pretty much the primary one. Like brew in a bag, which of course also was met with a lot of griping when uh, – life first appeared, you know, people going, oh, you're going to make cloudy wort. That's a terrible idea. You can't do this. The current popularity of no-chill brewing, and remember, no-chill brewing has been around for years and years in different forms and guises, but the current popularity of it has been largely fueled by our brewing compatriots in Australia who are dealing with unbelievably tight water restrictions 
And like many of us here in the U.S., also high groundwater temps. We should also take a moment to make sure that we're not being remiss and send out our hopes to our friends in Australia uh, because they are still battling a terrible fire season. Good luck to them. But this is a perfect example of why they have those water restrictions going on. And so now given that, at least in my mind as a Californian, water use should be a universal concern. And you'll always hear pundits talking about, oh, water scarcity is going to be a big factor in the in the next coming century. It bears exploring whether or not we can make something like no-chill work to actually reduce our water usage. For both Denny and I, we'd heard of no-chill, right? I mean, you'd heard of no-chill. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. You know, it had been uh, talked about here in the States for a while, despite people swearing that it worked just fine. You know, I was skeptical. I mean, you know, one person's just fine is another person's, ooh, what is that? Yes, given the number of uh, beers I've had that taste like green water hose. (laughs) Right. But Denny and I were flown down to Melbourne a couple years ago for the Australian Homebrewers Conference. And I think we kind of had a little bit of a shock. And if you go back and you listen to that episode that we recorded there live, you'll hear us kind of like a a little bit of a gog and you'll hear this part that I'm going to tell you. We had uh, Helen down there in Melbourne. It did us a favor and actually brewed up a couple of different short spears for us to do as a tasting experiment. And we served them out to the crowd. and It was great. It was fun. And then as we were discussing it, she had mentioned that the Schwartz beer was done no chill. And I remember Danny and I were uh, kind of, oh, really? <laughs> yeah. And I think I think it was you, Denny, who turned around and asked the crowd, right? Yeah, right. You know, and I had expected to see, you know, a, a fair number of people who did no chill. But I think that we were both pretty much stunned to see that it was probably – 99% of the two or 300 people that were there brewed no chill. Yeah, we just said, hey, how many people out there uh, brew no chill? And almost every hand in that room shot. Yeah, yeah. And it I'm, was it was remarkable. And I'm fairly certain the hands that didn't shoot up probably weren't paying attention. <laughs> they were drunk. And I mean, I, th- I think it's also fair to say while we were at that conference, we had a fair amount of homebrew. And I mean, yes, quality varied as homebrew qualities do vary, but given that the vast majority of the people that were there were doing no-chill, I didn't notice anything that made me go, oh, all this beer sucks because it's done no-chill. You know, of the beers that we had, any flaws that we tasted are not things that I would have attributed to no-chill. And the thing that I really remember is when we got to Sydney and uh, we were were in the pub there doing our presentation in Sydney, and somebody had brought us some no-chill IPAs that they had made. And they were freaking stunning. Uh, not only were they crystal clear and no DMS, contrary to what we're told will happen, the hop profile was really great, wasn't it? It was. And so we'll actually get into a little bit more about how to do that ourselves. But the practice is pretty simple. All you're doing is you're taking your wort straight out of the boil, boil like you normally would. And understand that that wort is actually fairly sanitary at that point. You get it into a clean, heat-proof environment, and you keep unsanitary air out of the mix. We should be able to naturally cool the wort to pitching temperatures without using any water and just using air and time. I think probably the most dramatic example we saw of No Chill was when we went to a really large homebrew store uh, called Grain and Grape, run by uh, our friend John Preston, who was our host down there in Australia. These guys 
have a large brewing system in the back to crank out wort, which they then hot pack and sell, and you can take home and pitch. You don't need to do anything else. The wort comes in uh, these HDPE containers. It's ready to go, and they just had stacks and stacks of them sitting there. Use a 500-liter Braumeister, I think. Yeah. Yeah, their only instructions to users of these is you come, you buy the thing, you sanitize your fermenter, and then you pour the wort in with also like a, a couple of liters of extra water, right, to just water it down a little bit because they brew strong. Um, and yeah, this is – we had talked about this on the main show. We know that this is happening both in Australia and in Canada. I'm not – I haven't seen it at all here in the U.S., but yeah, they they hot pack and and sell that wort to you. As Danny just alluded to, the container of choice for many brewers who are doing this are these uh, 20 liter or 5.3 gallon HDPE water cubes or uh, jerry cans. And you can find them on Amazon for, you know, around 20, 25 bucks. You simply just take that wort straight out of the boil kettle and I just pump it straight out of my grandfather into this thing. I admittedly, I'm a little paranoid. I clean the, the jerry can, which you should. And then there are some people who don't sanitize the jerry can. I'm not a big believer in that. I will sanitize it, even though in theory, the hot wort should do some of the sanitation. You just take it and put it into that jerry can, then close it up and let it sit overnight. Um, now, in theory, you should also be able to do this with a corny keg, although we had a very long debate about this. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, it's not a theory, and the debate came from people who haven't tried it. I have quite a number of times uh, with zymatic batches, and I have never had any issues whatsoever just sealing up the corny. Now, that might be because I've been using it on a batch coming out of the zymatic. I've been boiling in it already so that it's you know pretty well sterilized and everything. But I haven't had any issues at all with the keg pulling a vacuum and oxidizing the beer or infection or any of those other terrible things that people told me were going to happen. And my worry, of course, was also, okay, what would happen to the keg itself? You know, because you are going to draw a vacuum as you get that uh, cooling. And I checked with Palmer to just double check me on this one. But yeah, no problems with anything happening structurally to the keg. If you're really worried about the lid coming loose, because again, those lids usually need a little positive pressure to seal. You know, you can always put some low level of CO2 on there and that would be fine. Yeah. You know, and I've even, I've even used HDPE buckets, uh, taken, uh, taken beer out of the uh, zymatic batch, poured the wort into a bucket and uh, just sealed it up. No airlock or anything and uh, let it cool that way. And no problem there. Here's how you do the no-chill waltz in uh, just a few steps. Make sure your cube or container, and remember, it's got to be heat-proof, no glass ever. <laughs> no, don't even think about going there. Yeah, don't use glass. I don't want uh, to have to deal with laceration stories. I also really hate the sight of blood. So make sure that your container is scrupulously clean and sanitized. Like I said, I sanitize just out of, uh, well, paranoia. Finish your brew day as usual. You get that boil timer to hit zero, whirlpool, just to you know collect the trube, right? Because one of the main complaints people have about this is, you know, hey, wait, uh, what about trube getting into the beer? Yeah, we'll get there. No hops yet, because we'll uh, talk about this later. Uh, whirlpool hops this way, I, I don't think work very well. And then just transfer that super hot wort into the container. Um, a number of brewers will actually squeeze the cube to remove as much air as possible and to increase surface contact with the side and hopefully reduce any oxidation. I don't tend to obsess over that, so I'm okay there. Now, then just move the cube somewhere safe and cool, like a concrete garage floor. Hey, 
that works. Um, be careful as you're moving the cube as the plastic will get nice and soft. If you are the sort of person who has a pool, in which case, okay, you're worrying about water usage, but you have a pool, but uh, whatever. <laughs> you can uh, go and stick the cube into your pool. I've known friends for years who have done the same thing with like their boil kettles. Um, if you live someplace snowy, throw the thing in a snowbank, watch the snow melt. Let the work cool overnight with a possible exception. And I'm going to talk about that in in my experiments here in a moment. Don't try and do what I did at one point in time and throw your cube into a fridge or a freezer. The amount of heat that's contained in the cube will completely overwhelm your fridge or freezer. And all you'll do is, you know, make your compressor sad. So don't do that. I got to tell you, I have put mine in my chest freezer before and no problems. Well, but that's with a Zymatic batch, right? Uh, yeah, that's with a... I, th I don't think I've done it with a five gallon batch doing that, but yeah, two and a half gallon batch I have. It's a big freezer. It's a 15 and a half foot cubic freezer. So there's a lot of cold in there. But in general, I don't recommend doing it. Just let the thing cool. The next morning, you can transfer the wort to another fermentation vessel, right? So, you know, your carboy, keg, your conical, whatever you want, and pitch your yeast as you're normally doing. I actually, for my first couple of experiments here, decided to keep the wort in the cube and just fit a blow off tube in place. It worked like a charm, uh, but there's not a lot of room for fermentation mechanics in there. So you got to be a little careful when you're doing that. Now, this all sounds great, right? It sounds wonderful because, hey, I don't have to chill. I'm not wasting water. So why the hell do we chill? Yeah, good question. Uh, well, you know, there's uh, the cold break that you get from chilling, which can be important for clarity, but maybe not so much we're finding. Uh, the, the food safety aspect, which is, you know, a, a good point. But on the other hand, you have boiling work going into this container and then you seal it up. So there's, um, I just can't see that being a danger. Well, the, the only thing that's a danger is botulism, but. Wow, that would be a rarity. I, I think so, too. Uh, don't take our word for it. I guess we're going to have to look into this a little bit. huh? Uh, you know, also chilling, you can get the yeast in there more quickly, which can be a good thing if you're worried about infections. Uh, although, again, the no-chill kind of deals with that. By uh, putting the boiling wort into a container, there's not much way it's going to be able to get infected. Uh, you reduce the in reintroduction of SMM to avoid DMS. That's the precursor of DMS. And then the, also for you IPA lovers out there, uh, quick chilling can help preserve your hop aroma, although the Australians seem to have a way around that. And also, don't forget, it also allows us to really dial in our IBUs because you do spend more time with no chill up above that utilization level. Right. Um, now, advantages to no chill. Uh, no chill means less time in the brewery waiting on things. And it's actually amazing how much time you, you save. Like if you look at it on the, on paper, as you're like playing out your time, it doesn't seem like you're saving that much time. Right. But it turns out it makes it a hell of a lot easier to rip off a quick brew day, say post work. There's less water usage, obviously. And, you know, it also means that you don't have to have an absolutely awesome chiller, like say a jaded hydra or Scylla, uh, because those things are expensive. You know, they they are not necessarily the cheapest things in the world, but you know, at the same time, they're nice to have. Disadvantages to no chill. And these are the things people will talk about again and again. My beer will be infected. No, it won't. As long as you're practicing good sanitation practices, your beer will be fine in that cube. Uh, my IPAs or lagers are going to taste funny. I'll have no hop aroma. My lagers will be corny and cabbagey, right? Uh, so far, my experience has been no. No. Not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my beer is going to be hazy. Asterisk there. 
Yes, maybe. But also there are steps that you can take to get around it. Yeah, right. I haven't seen a hazy no-chill beer yet. Uh, I have, but uh, again, ways around it. Right. I'm old and grumpy, and that's not the way I was taught to brew, and that's not how the professionals do it either. Uh, that's going to be the main argument you hear. <laughs> exactly. And you know what? You're right. If, as we always preach on the show, if you have a practice, a methodology that works for you that you really like, go for it. Stick to it. I don't care. But I'm also here to argue with the, argue that, yes, it does actually work. So as long as you have a practice and you're willing to accept other people's practices as possibly working, good. And of course, that's not how the professionals do it, because think of the size of the jerry can they'd have to have. I mean, where do you get a 20-barrel jerry can? Yeah, and and also just the, the sheer thermodynamics and the mechanics of it. Yeah, you know, right, yeah. You know, it takes a lot longer for 200 gallons of work to cool down than it does five. Yeah, this is, this is yet another place where home brewers have a clear advantage over commercial brewers. Now, let's address the issues that people have with no-chill. One, clarity, right? So as we said, my beer is going to be hazy. You can use uh, finings like, say, gelatin, biofine, super clear, or just time. Uh, I had an IPA that I just did. We'll talk about it in a little bit. And the first week after I kegged that beer, yeah, it was hazy. Darn. Second I let it settle for a week, guess what? It wasn't hazy. And we don't know that it wouldn't have been hazy if you would have chilled the conventional way. Yep, exactly. Uh, sanitation. Look. It's the same thing as any other process that you're going to do. You've got to be assiduous in your cleaning and sanitation. It doesn't matter if you're doing no chill or chill. So as long as you're being assiduous with your, your sanitation, you're fine. Your fermentation is going to be messed up. Not if you use the techniques that we've taught you to create a lot of healthy yeast to get your fermentation moving. No different here with no chill than, than chilling. There's nothing magical about what happens to your fermentation. And then finally, the thing about your hops and your IPAs, you know, your IBUs being weird and your hop aromas being weird. This is what you have to do. You have to adjust your hopping levels and timing slightly. Oh, no. There's a process change. Oh, no. How am I going to deal with that? So now there were a couple of different pieces of advice out there because uh, obviously I reached out to people who've been doing this for a while. And some of the pieces that I saw was, you know, adjust all your hop additions to be 20 minutes later in the boil. So in other words, like your 60-minute bittering addition becomes a 40-minute addition. And then anything with less than 20 minutes in the boil, you just toss in the cube. Other piece of advice, half your bittering hops and let it ride at 60 minutes. And then what I actually did was I actually moved the bittering addition to 30 minutes and I kept it the same, but I moved it back to 30 minutes. And then also because of what we talked about with the aroma loss, you know, a lot of people being worried about you're going to lose your aroma or you're going to cook up your aroma. Uh, many Australian brewers believe in aggressive dry hopping of their IPAs in order to combat this. Because uh, one of the common experiences that you get that you'll hear from people is, oh, the hops end up take, tasting uh, minty and herbal. And one of the beers that I did, we'll talk about. Yeah, that was one of the comments that, that came back to it. But it was actually a very mild character in the beer. Huh. Any other thoughts, uh, Denny? You know, n not really. I was just going to say that uh, I can dig the dry hopping. I have really gone back to dry hopping a lot more than uh, I have the last few years. For a while, I was on the uh, Whirlpool bandwagon, and uh, I tended to try and do that instead of dry hopping. Eventually, didn't care for it as much. I didn't get as much out of it, so I've gone back to dry hopping. So I guess in that regard, uh, I'm, I'm ready to do no chill, huh? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I, I whirlpool all the time, and I have a technique here about whirlpooling that we'll get into. So this is all well and good in theory. 
I think we can all buy the the reasons and the ideas why it works. I think we can also buy why people are going to be grumpy about it. More. <laughs> yeah, really, man. It's like saying to them, everything you know is wrong. Yeah, well, except for, I mean, this particular case, I, I look at it the same way as like, you know, I mean, look, people used to do their mash by sticking baskets into the into the mash and ladling out the wort. We don't do that anymore. The objections I hear uh, are very much in the same vein as the ones I heard when I started telling people how great batch sparging was. And and again, remember, as we as we always say, and we said in the last episode of the show, too, we're homebrewers. We have different scales. Now, let's talk about three beers that I did with this to kind of explore different aspects of how this works. And the first was, big shocker, I started with the Saison. Anybody surprised? Uh, no, not really. I figured. So I started with my Saison Experimental, which is the recipe I've probably brewed the most of any recipe I've ever done. It's the one I know the best, and I know exactly what to expect out of it, and I know exactly what it should taste like. So I made a batch of that, and I pitched it with Y-Yeast 3724, which is the, the Belgian Saison yeast, and I let it ride in an open fermentation situation in the cube, right? So not even a blow-off tube. That one, I just covered the, the top of the cube with foil and let it let it run. And I shipped it to Denny. <laughs> yes, you did. And it was stunningly good. But don't you know you can't just cover it with foil because it'll pull a vacuum and suck in all that uh, bacteria and you'll infect your beer. Oh, no, no, no. So what I did was I closed it down, let it chill. And the next morning, popped the top, pitched the yeast, and then covered the opening. Ah, I got it. Well, at any rate, that beer was stunningly good. I think if you go back and listen to the episode where I was tasting some beers that Drew sent to me, that may have been my favorite out of all of them. And, you know, there were no flaws in that beer. There was absolutely nothing wrong with it. It was absolutely no different than it would have been if it had been made with the conventional chilling methods. Uh, and I think at first when you had it, I didn't even tell you it was no chill. No, you didn't. I, no, I was really shocked when you eventually did. So uh, the other one that I did was a fast lager. I haven't given that to Denny. If you go back and you listen to when we were tasting the brew fest in the tasting episode, uh, very similar idea, very similar schedule. That one I did uh, no chill and then put it into the conical and then let it run. And you know what? Worked like a charm. No yeah, flaws. Man, another, another great beer, no noticeable flaws. Well, and that was the thing is uh, the reason I did that one was because I wanted to check for DMS. Right. Exactly. So, and I didn't get any DMS out of that beer. So that's at least another point in that thing's favor. Again, as long as you're good with your sanitation and as long as you're good with your yeast and your fermentation practices, you can get away with murder. Well, you know, and it kind of plays into something that uh, I firmly believe, which is DMS in general is much, much less of an issue than it used to be because of new breeds of barley that have been coming out, uh, new malting practices that have been developed. Um, I can't remember the last time I got DMS in any beer, no matter how badly I tried to screw it up. Well, and there's also some further evidence that shows, depending upon vigor of boil and openness of oil, just how much SMM is actually forced out during the boil stage so that it doesn't actually get reabsorbed in into that cooling phase if you're in this long extended cooling period. Exactly. So, all right. And then the other one, I did a version uh, two of this beer, and you guys would have heard the initial tasting with Denny and I when we were talking about this, about choosing beers for the 40th anniversary beer. And that's the Coming In Hot IPA. 
And again, I called it coming in hot because it was made with Veterans Blend, and it's also a no-chill beer. Remember, one of the things I had I had objected to in the version that we tasted for the show previously was it was very, very fruity. And I wasn't sure if that was something from the no-chill process, got it, or if it was something from the hops, because that was a 100% Veterans Blend. And the Veterans Blend, if I remember correctly, that year was very heavily laurel. And laurel, laurel has a very strong fruitiness to it. One of the big complaints that we've said earlier about no-chill brewing is that the hops taste weird. You know, you've got a long exposure time to heat, you know, at these higher temperatures, you get extra extract from the hop matter. So you get extra green characters, you get extra tannins, you get extra this, that, and the other. And also you get extra utilization of your, your bitterness. So what I did was I actually used in my boil kettle, I used a stainless steel mesh spider, which helps keep most of the hop material out of the wort. You know, it's just the the steel cylinder that they sell for the grandfather. Right. And so I kept most of the hot material out of the wort. And then I added a non-whirlpool whirlpool step to the batch. Let that one sink in for a minute. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how you do that. So what I did was I hot packed the wort and I let it cool for about four hours. And then that was when it was about one, still above 140, but not near the boil anymore. And I added an ounce of hops to the cube, resealed everything, and gave it a good shake to make sure the the hops went everywhere in the in the liquid. And you know what? That actually gave a really good hop aroma. Oh, cool! <laughs> um, and without without sort of the the overt bitterness that I would expected from long exposure, one hundred and seventy plus. The batch that I have right now, and I'll, uh, I should probably can some up and send it to you so you can taste it. I didn't actually bother dry hopping that batch because. I wanted to get a better sense of what the raw hop nose was out of it. Right. Yeah. I've done the same thing a number of times with beers. Yeah. And so what I actually ended up doing was I took this to the Maltos Falcons uh, club meeting and I served it to people there and used it as a platform to be able to talk about no chill. And by and large, I mean, of course, tons of questions, tons of questions about this. Uh, because it does kind of fly in the face of some of the stuff that we've been taught over the years. Did you tell them it was no chill before you gave it to them? I did. I, I cheated on that one uh, because I was just like, here we go. Um, and I think enough of them had heard the story of coming in hot anyway. So I wasn't going to be able to. The other thing I also did in, in my new version of this recipe, because again, I was wondering if it was the laurel that was throwing me in version two, was I subbed out the initial bittering charge with Warrior as opposed to Veterans Blend. So it's now Warrior bittering with Veterans Blend Whirlpool. And then on the normal batch, it would be a veterans blend dry hopped. Cool. So, and then, you know, and I just read that one, I think with Cal and let it run and control the fermentation. I was really, really pleased with how it came out. Uh, like I said, I had one comment from somebody who knew that some of the hop character to them felt sort of minty, which again was one of those common complaints that we see about this, but all in all, not too bad. I was, I was rather, I was rather chuffed. And, you know, and you can't really attribute that to the no chill, uh, without really having a batch of conventionally chilled beer of the same stuff to compare it to. Yeah. And one of the things I do want to do is I want to get that batch, part of that batch sent off for IBU analysis because I want to see where the IBUs landed in that thing. Coming in hot, Dana. Yep. Coming in hot. So again, I was, I was really, really, really pleased with this. Now, my verdict about this, you know, about the whole no chill, is it worthwhile? And I have to say, yeah, actually, I think it is. 
Um, I was really, really impressed with this technique and something about it made my brew days a little more carefree. It was kind of like the same sort of, uh, little extra boost of freedom that I got when I decided to switch over to an immersion chiller as opposed to the counterflow chiller I've been using. Right. You know, it was like one less thing I had to really worry about during the day. I do think the technique carries over easiest to beers that are either, uh, malt or yeast centered, take like a stout or a Belgian beer or, you know, just anything where the malt is the primary, uh, the malt or the, or those yeast characters are the primary writer. I do think it gets a little more complicated when you're talking about something hoppy, but I still think that you can do this. It's just, it requires a little bit of process change and a little bit more work in order to make things, you know, sing in the same way. And of course, all of our calculations are out the window because who the hell knows what's happening here now? Because I don't think Glenn Tenseth, uh, thought about what it would take in order to do IBU calculations for no chill. No, I don't, I don't think so. So in that respect, it would be really great to get some samples set off for testing. Denny, any other, any other thoughts about uh, no chill before we leave? All I can say is that I have gone from a skeptic to a believer. And I hope that uh, all of you out there who are listening to this will also, uh, if not try it for yourself, at least believe that it's a viable technique. Uh, put aside your scientific objections and accept the evidence that's out there in front of you. Um, as we say over and over again, theory is often astonished by reality. And I think that that's one of those things here. Um, you know, I, I don't have a reason to do it a lot myself because I have a well with free water and it's really cold. So I've only done it like as a curiosity to see what would happen. But for those of you who have real issues, it is a viable technique and you should give it a try. Yeah. I mean, for someone like me who I am, my groundwater during the summer is 77, 78 degrees. <laughs> yeah. Mine is still around 55. Yeah. No chill actually makes a lot of sense for me during the, particularly during the summer, because I mean, like right now, if I were to go out and chill, I think my groundwater is coming in closer to like 58. Um, if I were to go out and chill, yeah, no problem. My, my hydro drops things like a rock. Uh, if I'm dealing with this during the summer, it, it still works pretty fast, but it doesn't get it all the way down. So in a lot of ways, I think this is a perfect summertime technique for me. And it's something I'm going to play around with a little bit more because, Hey, if it's something that makes my brew day a little bit simpler and I can still get great beer out the other side, I'm game. Yeah. I think it's one of those things you keep doing until you don't get good results. And then you find out what happened, whether it was due to that technique or something else. But so far, everything uh, that I've tasted leads me to believe if you have water issues, either temperature or uh, amount wise, it's a great thing to do. Thank you everyone for joining us for another episode of the brew files. We hope that you enjoyed this look at keeping your beer warmer for longer and how it can simplify your brew day and still make great beer. What do you think? Have you done it? What concerns do you have? Are you going to object just on the fact that eh, that's not the way I was taught? All we can say is trust us and the brewers in Australia who are making great beer and give it a shot. Now, remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at Denny at experimentalbrew.com or Drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at EXP Brewing, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and just about every homebrew forum out there. And of course, you can always find us at www.experimentalbrew.com. And don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. 
Click the AHA, Amazon, Brewers, Friends, or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... It's a great organization called Not One More Vet. I don't know if you guys are aware of it, but veterinarians, those wonderful people who take care of our wonderful critters, are much more likely to commit suicide than the rest of the population out there. So this is an organization that uh, helps prevent veterinarian suicide and deal with some of the effects of it. Great people, great organization. Throw us a few bucks and we'll pass it along. And remember, until next time, remember to always brew wacky. Or brew experimentally. And the brew is out there. This episode is brought to you by Brewers Publications, publishing books of enduring value for amateur and professional brewers, as well as titles that promote understanding and appreciation of American craft beer. Visit BrewersPublications.com to learn more. <laughs>